When we decide to be a country founded on both slavery and freedom, we justify that by dehumanizing Black people and by saying that they're not like other human beings. Therefore, when we brutalize them, when we rape them, when we kill them, when we exploit their bodies for profit, we don't really have to feel that bad about it because they don't feel pain like us because they don't love like us. So when I sell this mother's child, she doesn't, she doesn't feel what I feel. She feels like what a dog would feel with the puppy being gone. She'll forget about her child the next day, which is literally what they would tell these women, right? To create a system like that and then add emancipation, say, actually, you're fully human just like the rest of us. You cannot because the whole lie that upheld the system was that we weren't. And so each generation passes on that knowledge that Black people are deserving of our fate. We are deserving of a reality because we are not fully human like them. We don't even have to have anyone explicitly say it. It is, it is in the fiber of our country. It is the lie that hides our hypocrisy. Nicole Hannah-Jones is a certified genius, a spiritual warrior, and a journalist who's trying to change America. She's the spirit behind the 1619 Project at the New York Times, which was a takeover of the New York Times magazine, as well as an incredible podcast series, as well as an upcoming series of books and articles, all of which are meant to help us further understand the way that slavery and its long lingering effects have shaped so many aspects of America so widely and so deeply that she calls America a slaveocracy. Nicole's also done extraordinary work exploring education and racism. She's an intellectual badass who's got a MacArthur Genius Grant and a job at the New York Times and a mind full of brilliant ideas. I mean, I listen to her and she just blows me away. She is awesome. And I'm so honored to have had her on the show. It's the great Nicole Hannah-Jones on Toray Show. When the 1619 printed project came out, there was this thrill among black people, like walking around, like carrying and clinging to it, holding on to it. And like, it's like so important. Um, did you feel that excitement when like people were finally getting their hands on it and like, this is so great. Yeah, it was like the most amazing thing of my life, really. Um, I, uh, I mean, I, I hoped we were making something powerful. I knew it was important. But as you know, that doesn't mean that people will re- respond to it in that way. And uh, the response far exceeded, uh, exceeded any expectation we, we had, for what sure. Was, what was the pitch? That I made to the to the times this because this came yeah. this came from you not from yep. somebody saying hey imagine something great but you said no let's do something no yeah I I uh, I've been thinking about the year sixteen nineteen for a very long time and uh, I'd been on Bookly for about a year and a half and uh, the first thing I pitched when I got back from Bookly in January was a project and uh, the pitch was very simple. Um, we have a, I first I talked to my editor about it and then we have a weekly ideas meeting uh, for the magazine and I just brought it up at the meeting and I said that uh, this August will mark the 400th anniversary of the first enslaved Africans being sold into Virginia and that um, most 
Americans have never heard of that date and that I wanted to dedicate an entire issue of the magazine to assessing the ongoing legacy. I just want a whole issue. <laughs> yeah. not a, it's not an article. No. It's the whole thing. Because what I said was that the argument of the magazine would be that you can look across all of these aspects of American life, capitalism, uh, democracy, why we're the only um, Western industrialized country without universal health care, our culture, our legal system, that almost nothing has been left untouched by the legacy. And I wanted the magazine to look at a modern modern phenomenon across American life and then trace it back to the legacy of slavery. And that we were going to be able to make these connections in a way that they hadn't been made and really um, do a project to place slavery actually at the center of the American story. And Immediately, Jake Silverstein, the editor in chief of the magazine, was like, "Let's do it." Like that was it. And I mean, that has been took off from there. I mean, I want to talk about this specific project, but that has been part of your genius at getting major media institutions to say yes. Let's do a major project on a very specific, deep issue of racism. Right? I mean, yeah. I, I first came to know your work with you did two major pieces on segregation for This American Life. Yeah. Um, and now this major multimedia project for the New York Times. Just for those of us who are in those spaces or entering those spaces, how do we get a room full of white folks mm-hmm. to say, yes, we will dedicate a ton of space to segregation or a ton of space to, you know, the slaveocracy of America when they know a lot of the audience will be like, this makes me uncomfortable. Yeah, I think uh, to be clear, um, it wasn't that big organizations always wanted to say yes. Absolutely. Um, I've been working around these issues for almost 20 years, and uh, there were certainly times in my career where it was a struggle to get my uh, news organization to allow me to do the work I wanted to do. But I think what um, what I have is the benefit of, I've been studying this for 25 years. I'm obsessed with it. I read widely on uh, the history of race, on um the sociology of race, I um, have always treated it as an investigative story and not simply let me show you how black people are at the bottom of this indicator. Let me show you that uh, segregation exists because that's not interesting. People know that anything you measure, black people will suffer the most from it. But I uh, I always make the argument that I'm, I'm going to show you the architecture of it. I'm going to show you the intentionality of it. And um, it's going to be investigative and it's going to be surprising to people. Um, and I think that's what, once you have success doing that, of course, it becomes easier to convince people to let you do it. But I think what my work is always surprising to people, like people are not surprised segregation exists, but when I show them, actually there was a 30 year decision by the federal government not to enforce our fair housing laws. You know, um, when I can say actually, we don't have universal health care because we have fought back against social programs because we thought black people would benefit them for more than 150 years. I think it's that element of surprise, but also really the rigor of the scholarship. Um, race is one of those things because everybody has a race that everybody thinks they know, just like covering education. Everybody thinks they understand mm-hmm. how public education should work because they've gone to school. And uh, when you can approach them uh, with an argument that, they never thought of, they never knew. It's shocking to them, surprising to them. Uh, I've been able to to sell those arguments. And then uh, you also have to actually be able to deliver compelling narrative, 
rigorous scholarship, uh, get people to talk to you, all of those kind of normal reporting things as well. The 1619 podcast has been extraordinary. Is there a story that most sticks out to you that you're like, I am so glad that we got to be able to put this story in front of everybody's face. Yeah. So I I definitely have to shout out the producers on the podcast. Um, They're the ones who made it beautiful and the storytelling so compelling. And uh, we're literally making each one of those intensely narrative episodes like week by week. It was, it was a a crazy schedule. Um, So there's, there's two things that really stand out to me. I love the music episode, Wesley Morris's music episode. Uh, So much of, this project is just hard and devastating. And I think in his episode, you feel all the ranges of human emotion. You feel Mm. anger and profound sadness, but also profound joy. And I think it really best encapsulates uh, the entirety of the Black experience that um, we face so much pain, but we have managed to create and to live and to thrive. Um, and even when white people try to take things from us in the end, they, they can't take that spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that episode is just beautiful in that way. Um, and then I really love the the two parts um, episode that ends, which is on the sugarcane farmers, the provost in uh, Louisiana. It. <sighs> It's just is really devastating. Hard. It is. But the like the 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 human narrative that's right now, I think is just so compelling and um just shows that our stories just don't have happy endings in I America. Mean, you keep talking about <laughs> these farmers who are unable to get the loans that they yeah. need and deserve and it keeps shrinking their farms. That was the only one that I couldn't finish because I just felt like it, 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 like just being black is so hard. It is. And, I, and, and people like the, were the, telling me in the second episode that they were like, oh, we thought the second episode, like he was going to get his farm back. And I'm like, that's not how it works in this country. No. And he doesn't. No. I mean, when you talk about your father, like you understanding your father flying the flag and I'm like, okay, yes. And like the music <laughs> episode, like, yes. And mm. then that one was like, no, he's just withering and withering. And you think about, is that going to happen to me in some way? And maybe I don't even see it yet, but like, no, Negro, it always ends badly. I mean, that's the thing is like, even though it's about farmers. So what I loved about the episode, a lot of things like I, I grew up in Iowa, but I don't know shit about farming. And it just explained so much, you know, just about what it's like to be a farmer. And then it's this amazing story of like how black folks coming out of slavery with nothing, literally nothing, managed to like... Uh, just through like sheer will and force and desire to acquire this land under, you know, the the most terrible circumstances. And then to see that not like a hundred years ago, but like right now, this architecture of oppression that very systematically steals away these hard fought gains and to see the, how that's still working. I think it's, uh, it, it illuminates our society, but it was just, yeah, it's absolutely devastating. I actually um, was in New Orleans two weeks ago and I, I had dinner with them. What's amazing about them though, is they're fighters. Like that's who we are. So they're still fighting. They haven't given up. Um, they're trying to teach other black farmers how not to lose their land. And, they're amazing, but they're probably not going to get their farm back unless they win this lawsuit. And this work is emotionally 
difficult for you to report on, Absolutely. Right? I drink a lot of bourbon. <laughs> <laughs> it is, though, right? Because um, it's never... There's never a remove from it. It's not like I'm writing about some people over there. When I go home, I can leave it at home. Like I'm writing about our people and uh, every story. I mean, this was, it was kind of the strange revelation of working on the podcast when we started almost every story with a personal story from my life. And I was like, yeah, because all of these things happen to black people, like not just one story, but like everything in here happens to every black family, no matter if you're wealthy, no matter if you're poor, like we, all of these things are our story. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it was extremely, this was definitely, the, all of my work is hard, but this is the hardest thing I've ever worked the 16, on. 19 yeah. I mean, it really gets at the core of the slaveocracy as you yes. call it. And for so many people, so many white people, they're like, well, slavery was long ago. Yep. So why are you still talking about that? And you are expert at drawing these lines that are like, here are the specific and direct ways that we are still in the grips of it. Can you just talk about some of the slaveocracy as you see it? Yeah, I mean, that that really was um, at my pettiest, uh, why I pitched the project was I was like, I'm going to answer for every black person who ever had a white person say just what you said, that was 150 years ago, get over it. Mm -hmm. And I was going to use this project to show like, we can't get over this because you guys can't get over it. Mm -hmm. And our institutions have certainly not gotten over it. So it's, it's everywhere. I mean, just, you know, the fact that today we're still trying to make it hard for black folks to vote. Uh, we mm -hmm. have an electoral college, which means that mm -hmm. uh, it's not really one man, one vote or one woman, one vote that we have never wanted actually most of our citizens to be able to exercise democracy, that it's always been we wanted powerful white people to have control. Um, that goes back to our founding when uh, we don't allow the majority of Americans to exercise a franchise and to shape our political systems. And our political systems have always been run by white men. Uh, it's in, you know, as Matt Desmond's piece shows, our particularly brutal system of capitalism here. Why, if you look at other countries we compare ourselves to, workers have way more rights. They have far more um, uh, activism in labor unions. Uh, they have, you know, better benefits. Uh we're the only country without universal health care. We have the stingiest social safety net. We have the stingiest like maternal leave when you have a baby. Like all of these things uh, are traced back to uh, the institution of slavery and the type of capitalism that says the only thing that matters is profit. And if you have to torture people to death to get money, it's okay. Um, and so all American workers are still suffering from a system that uh, says the only thing that matters is how much profit can you wring from something. And our belief that um, as long as there's someone else who can be exploited under us, we'll accept a certain degree of exploitation. I think Matt Desmond does a good, great job of explaining that we kind of believe in a, that the American form of capitalism is just what capitalism looks like, but actually that there's lots of forms of capitalism that actually allow protection for workers that actually don't brutalize um, and, and lead to so much inequality. So it's all of those things that... I think what I'm arguing is that, yes, America is exceptional, but not in the ways that we'd like to believe. <laughs> I mean, and just to add to all that, we think about the war on drugs, 
which is built on the narratives of we are lazy and criminal. Yes. Right? And to be criminal, you kind of have to be hardworking. You can't be lazy, but, you know, whatever. But when, if you believe those two things, then it's easy to believe they are the problem and we're going to attack them and root out our big problem. And that leads to mass incarceration, which becomes its own cycle because we've taken the father out of the home for something small, perhaps nonviolent. That's but, right. You know, this other father, this white father was able to smoke weed on his porch, but this other one was not. And now your family is broken. And then, oh, the problem is broken families. But no, the problem is uh, mis- misapplication of the law. Um, I mean, you know, that's a big part of this as well. Well, yeah, even the, so the, the over-criminalization of the population uh, comes directly from the aftermath of slavery. The criminalization of things that shouldn't be considered uh, criminal, right? So smoking weed or vagrancy laws. So, mm-hmm. so right after slavery, you see the passage of uh, laws around black people can't just be out on the street walking around. And the, all of these laws were passed to reinstate the system of slavery. Uh, so if you weren't contracted to a white person, you were considered a vagrant. And so you had to actually sign a labor contract with the person who had once enslaved you. And if you didn't have that contract, they would arrest you and then force you to work for that person anyway. (laughs) So we see uh, the way that we over-criminalize is a direct result, not of slavery, but of the racism um, after slavery that tries to re-enslave black people and our willingness. So we also are the most carceral uh, country in the world And um, we also have the most kind of brutal form of incarceration in the world. And you look at a place like the Angola prison in Louisiana that literally was a plantation, a cotton plantation named after Angola because that's where all the enslaved people who worked on that plantation came from. At the end of slavery, it converted directly into a prison that's still Angola and where to this day black people pick cotton when a white, (laughs) a white man on a horse with a gun uh, is making them pick cotton, like right. to this day. So right. it's like, you don't usually see such a direct translation, but you see it all through our criminal justice system. But what I hope people understand from the project is because we are the most carceral state, there are millions of white people who have gotten caught up caught up in the system mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. And same thing with, uh, we're the only country without universal health care because um, polling shows that if white Americans think Black people will benefit from a social program. Their support declines. So we're willing to let millions of white Americans not have health insurance either, as long as we think more black people will be hurt by the policy. So taken as a whole, you know, even the piece on traffic in Atlanta, um, when you're sitting in Atlanta in traffic for hours, it's because the, tr- the highways were not designed to move people quickly to and fro. They were designed to segregate black communities from white communities to provide a physical barrier. Um, and so as a result, it's not just black folks who are sitting in that traffic. It's mm-hmm. white people, too, losing time off their lives sitting in traffic. So all these areas that where we have designed these systems to harm black people, to keep black people on the bottom of the caste system, they hurt us more. But they also hurt lots of white folks, too. I went to Emory in Atlanta, (laughs) and I remember if we wanted to get to the AUC, you know, to meet women at Spelman or hang out with our friends at Morehouse, you had to take a bus to the train to get a bus. 
Yeah. And it's not easy to get across town. And when we read about the construction of the town, I was like, no, they didn't want it to be easy for the... And we we're, right. we're trying to go the opposite way. But they didn't want the black community to find it easy to get over to the white suburbs. Yeah, so Kevin Cruz, who's a historian, did the piece on Atlanta traffic. And he shows that the highway system was literally built to segment the black community to provide physical barrier, segmenting black communities off from white areas. And on top of that... Uh, the the refusal to bring transit out to the suburbs is the same thing. Um, so white communities don't want black people to have access to their communities through transit, understanding that black folks are less likely to own cars because we are less less wealthy. And so that means no one can get out to the suburbs. You're, um, you have to use highways. The highways aren't designed to get you there quickly, but you can't take public transit because the transit system stops at the Atlanta border. And so like everyone's lives is fucked up over this um but as long as white people can hold on to their racism and hold on to this uh perception that whiteness has this value they're they are willing to suffer as well because we're always suffering more um i mean also think about colorism right it's a Mm. huge part of slaveocracy and who among us is considered beautiful and valuable and who is not Yeah, of course. I mean, the whole idea of, uh, and I talk about this in my essay, you, the way that we get over our, uh, the fundamental hypocrisy of our founding, which is that we are founded both on the ideas of individual freedom and liberty and enslavement, um, And the way we get over that is to say black people are not fully human. So if black people are not actually human, then we're not liars. We are not hypocrites because these founding values and documents uh, only apply to human beings. Um, Part of that in humanity then is to say that everything associated with blackness is bad, and that's including our physical features. Um, At the same time, white people are having... Sexual relations, particularly white men, are uh, force, having forcible relationships with black women and producing children who are light-skinned. And those children began to get the same, not the same racial privilege as whiteness, but a racial privilege that you get from proximity to whiteness. And we see that now. You can look... Um, those were the, the the folks that coming out of slavery, Some their fathers would send them to school, put them up in housing sometimes. And so they were able to have more status than black people who are not of mixed race, but also um, just in terms of we see this now in studies that white people are more comfortable around lighter skinned black people, that they think lighter skinned black people are closer to them. Lighter skinned black people are less criminal, more uh, intellectual. And so we are allowed to ascend uh, in a ways that darker black people still are not. And then we, of course, buy into that as well because we're in a country that proximity to whiteness helped you advance. And so we internalize a lot of that racism. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. 
one of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. You talk about... Um... America wasn't a democracy until black Americans made it one and that we are the most American of all. Because yeah, we that have... really made uh, uh, those conservative white people mad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Out of uh, everything, that that and the article on capitalism are the two things that just pissed them off, which tells you a lot about our country. Well, we love pissing them off, but, <laughs> but more than pissing them off, because I'm not about owning the conservatives. I'm about getting to oh, the no. truth. This project was right. not about conservatives at all. It right. was about but what uh, you, providing what you, a counter narrative. But for the folks who haven't read the essay, what, what do you mean by that? I think we've heard that from Baldwin and others before, but what do you mean by that in modern context that, Amer- that we made America be the democracy that it claimed it was? Yeah, so I don't mean this in any kind of abstract, esoteric way. I mean, like, literally, uh, the founding documents did not allow the franchise to uh, fully one-fifth of the population, and actually more than half women couldn't vote, Native people couldn't vote, Black people couldn't vote. Um, And Black people fought to make those ideals true. So after... um, one black people fall for abolition, which means you end slavery. That is how you start to have a democracy. You can't have a democracy with one fifth of your population in bondage. Uh, then after the end of the Civil War, black people push for the Reconstruction Amendments, which uh, historian Eric Foner calls the second founding because it is the Reconstruction Amendments, uh, the 13th Amendment ending slavery, the 14th Amendment uh, granting birthright citizenship and equal protection before the law. 
and the 15th Amendment, which provides universal franchise for men, though women wouldn't come uh, for several decades. Uh, But black people are pushing for these Reconstruction Amendments. And that second founding is actually the first time where constitutionally we have uh, the framework for a true democracy, where all citizens are to be treated equally before the law and uh, you should be able to vote and exercise your franchise regardless of race. Uh, Black people continue then that struggle uh, as we see the end of Reconstruction leads to 100 years of racial terrorism and racial apartheid. And once again, Black people are fighting wars abroad, but also coming back and fighting their own countrymen in a decades-long sustained resistance movement to make uh, the Reconstruction Amendment, the reality of that, true. So you see the Civil Rights Movement. The Civil Rights Movement ends all legal discrimination um, based on race, nationality, and gender for all Americans, even though black Americans basically fought uh, the civil rights movement by themselves. So that's the argument, is that we would not have democracy um, as much as we have without that resistance struggle of black Americans who never fought just for themselves. Every civil rights law that gets passed because of black freedom struggle includes other marginalized groups and not just black folks. And I think you can't really argue against that talk about how much it angers the right when we say things like that that are truthful yes and you talk about your own personal pain in going through this but as a writer as a creator you put the personal pain aside because you believe in the work and i can tell that you just so deeply believe in what you are doing but you think also about the community and how the community receives the work and they want the truth because it is empowering yes but it's also painful to go through this again and not just the images but the stories are painful i couldn't get through the last episode because it was too painful right how do you how do you balance that of the necessary truth which we do want but then the pain of going through these deeper parts of black history that hurt us and you know, leave us re-traumatized and you always deliver it in a loving way. But do do you, how do you, how do you balance that part of it? How the black community receives the information that is necessary, but is hurtful. Yeah, I struggle. I mean, I struggle to worry about that the entire time. Um, And actually, uh, the thing that kind of kept me up at night as we were preparing to publish the Uh, the project was how would black people react to it? Um, I was far less concerned about white reaction. I knew white reaction would be varied, uh, but I was really doing this for us. Mm -hmm. And um, so I I, I thought a lot about that and we had lots of discussions about that. Uh, It's why my essay is the opening essay, which is saying, yes, there was all this pain, but we fought, we resisted and uh, we have create a great inheritance in this country. I wanted the first essay to be one of empowerment because I knew so much else uh, that was in there was going to be hard. That's why I um, wanted Wesley Morris to do the music essay because I said, this can't just be about what white people have done to us. We need Mm -hmm. to talk about our amazing contributions to this country. Um, And it's why at the very end, we end with the photo essay on the Howard Law School graduates because Uh, I wanted to show that despite all of these things, our story is a story of ascension. We have managed um, 
to survive and many of us, though not nearly enough of us, to start to thrive um, despite the circumstance. But there were lots of things in my when we finally uh, laid out the entire magazine on the wall, there was a big photo of a, a lynching uh, in my piece. And I, I'd had conversations about how we have to show this violence. Like violence is the constant theme. That's the only thing that explains uh, why we were in this position, because no one willingly submits to being enslaved or living under apartheid. But violence is is yeah what kept us there. Um, so it was important to me that we didn't walk away from that violence. And also that when we're told this history, the violence is really uh, played down. Um, so I said, yes, we need to show photos of lynchings. We need to show these types of photos. Um, but there was a big photo of a lynching. It was very close up. And uh, it just, it, it, I always listened to my gut and my stomach. I just didn't feel right about it. And I um, called another journalist friend of mine and I showed him the picture and I was like, what do you think about it running like this? Because the last thing I want to do is re-traumatize, as you said, black folks, they turn the page and they see this thing. And I don't want to dehumanize an ancestor who already was uh, dehumanized. And um, he agreed with me. And so I went to the editors and I was like, we have to take this lynching photo out. Can we find another one that still shows it, but maybe from a distance or smaller where it, it just doesn't feel a less graphic. Yes. And we did. And we ran one and, and the, and the man who was lynched is in the distance. You can't make out his facial features. It's blurry. Like, you know, someone was lynched, but it felt far less, uh, tra- traumatizing. Um, so it was a constant thinking about that and struggling with that, um, and trying to find the appropriate balance because our, our history is really hard. I went through that specific issue when I was at MSNBC because I started thinking about the way as media that we show war mm-hmm. is very sanitized. We yeah. don't show, you know, bodies that have been, had a bomb dropped on them, these sort of things. And because we don't, we as Americans in specific are able to just go on with our day without yep. thinking, hey, we dropped a bunch of bombs on uh, Iraq last night and that had a devastating effect to a lot of people. And just even if you're like, I don't like their politics – you're not fighting with the average person. exactly. And if you see incinerated bodies of women and children, you might be like, maybe we should approach this in a yes. different way. And the channel was like, we will never, ever show a devastated body or any of these sort of pictures because we don't want to traumatize the audience. And I'm like, okay, I understand. But a little traumatization of the audience could be valuable in saying, you know what? Maybe war is bad. Yeah. And and people abstractly think war is bad, but more specifically, like, oh, this is really bad. And this is part of what we're getting at within this, that we don't show enough of the violence of the past, which is not always totally right. past. Alton, Sterling, Tamir Rice, et cetera. Um, we don't always show it, but because we don't always show it, because we don't want to hurt each other, yeah. but not showing it, we allow it to perpetuate. You do. It's, I mean, that's the reason this project has to exist is there's been this uh, conspiracy of silence around what slavery actually was. Um, You know, the very fact that we uh, do plantation tours, Mm. these were forced labor camps. These were slave labor camps where people were forced to work against their will through torture and threat of violence. And the fact that in this country, uh, we think it's a cute place to go have a wedding or, you know, mm. wax nostalgic about the past because, you know, this is beautiful Grecian architecture. 
scripture speaks to uh, the willful forgetting of what this really was. So to do this project and steer away from the violence would just be uh, continuing complicity in that lie. At the same time, it's it's that same type of decision making when you're like, do we show this dead Iraqi child or not? And I think there's a constant balancing between how do we tell the truth, but how do we not from our further traumatize and when is enough and when is too much. Um, And I think that's what we were constantly trying to figure out. And I think we should always think about that. I think about with uh, Eric Garner, the only reason we know about it is because of the video, because mm-hmm. the police reporting on it was terrible, right? Mm-hmm, they they mm-hmm. just took the police line like us so often reporters have done. And even if you read that he died in a chokehold, it clearly would have had zero impact, uh, like watching them, that officer physically choke this man to death. Um, now, do you need to run it on a repeat reel? Over and over and over and over again. Uh, I remember with uh, Laquan McDonald footage, um, Mm. they ran on CBS on the morning show. And every morning I have that morning show on and my daughter, I think she was six and had no idea that they were going to show the video of this teenager being shot 16 times because we're watching a CBS morning show and my daughter watches it. That was very traumatizing for her. Um, And we talk about race and we talk about police killings, but to see it with no warning. So I I think that's something we always have to be conscious of, particularly when we're showing violence uh, committed against people of color. Because one of my also big pet peeves is we are much more likely to show black and brown people dead, but most people can't remember ever seeing a white person dead. Mm. Um, And we're certainly more willing to show uh, foreigners dead than we are dead Americans. Uh, I think that balance is important, but... um, there's just nothing can uh, uh, the image of uh, three black men hung to a light pole with their pants hung, you know, taken down, castrated, uh, dead. There's nothing like seeing that image to understand uh, what black people actually had to live through. So you have to, but you have to be careful and provide the context. And we warn people if you. Read in the opening page of the magazine, we warned the readers, you're going to read and see some very hard and disturbing things. We have to do it, but we want you to know that before you turn the page. Trigger warning. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals... Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order. Usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market. Dot com slash Toray. Thrivemarket.com slash Toray. On March 16th, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. 
Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeart Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. When the Black Smithsonian opened, I took my family, I think my daughter was six, something like that, seven. And, you know, they make you start at the beginning. It's constructed uh-huh. that you must start in the 1600s. You can't skip it. Yeah. And you start in the dark and then the deer. In the dark, mm-hmm. in the basement, in the difficult. And, um, and she cried learning some of that early history. And I felt like, well, you should, because our history is not PG. Our history is X-rated. Yeah. And knowing, as a child, knowing our history gave me a sort of sense of purpose. I remember at one point feeling like, wow, it would be cool to be in the CIA. And if I was, I mean, <laughs> really thinking like, if I was white, I would go be in the CIA and that would be cool. But like, I have this history. These people died yeah. so that I could be at this private school and in this college and this graduate school. And I need to do something of value with my life. Um, and the audience can debate whether or not I have lived up to that. <laughs> but I had that sense yeah. of I have to do something to give back to black people. And so knowing the and you talk about this in your work, that knowing the history as difficult as it is empowers you and shapes you. Right. Absolutely. And I know it happened to me very specifically that knowing the history and having names and faces historically and within my family of the, these people died so that I could be here in this moment, um, led me to say, I have to do something for black people. I have to do something, uh, that would be helpful to black people with my work. And that has been part of the crux of your work. Yeah. It's that. And it's, there's an empowerment in understanding that the conditions that so many black folks live in are not our fault, that they are created, that they are intentional. Um, Mm -hmm. And I know I, uh, I fell in love with history really young and I fell in love with history because history calmed me down. It explained things, you know, when you are a black child in this country, uh, you are taught that black people haven't really contributed anything mm. to America, mm. um, except maybe music, um, that we, our history starts with white people owning us and white people freeing us. And uh, you go from the end of slavery and then you blink and it's 1963 and Martin Luther King is marching on Washington. And then, you know, I have a dream. Racism is dead. Uh, yet you look around at your community and see why is it that, Whenever you go into a city, the black side of town always looks the worst. Why is it that uh, the schools black kids are in always have the worst things? Why is it, you know, that you see the rates of poverty? Um, And the message you get is we're free. We have the same rights as anyone else. We have the same opportunities as anyone else. We just choose. It's a free country. To live like this. Yeah. Um, And absent of other information, and you see this is true in every community you go into, then you believe it. And some people have made it out. So yes. why not so, you? Right. So they are the they are the exception that is used to justify uh, the conditions. Um, and so when you study history and sociology, um, then all of a sudden everything makes sense. And I always say, uh, 
my work is is tries to be like the red pill in the matrix mm. that uh, suddenly you can see all of the coding that has created this lived reality. And it's not about individuals making choices. It's about a system working as designed. Um, that calms me. That makes me understand, okay, it is not us. This all actually makes a lot of sense. It helps me understand why, you know, every, I grew up in a very working class community um, where black folks work like hard, hard, like hard, like labor, right? Like in beef packing plants, um, that sort of thing. And I'm like, I see how hard my family members work, but they're not getting ahead. So help me make this make sense. And I think that is what the response has been to the 1619 Project is we see this world, um, we're told one thing, it doesn't really make sense. And now we can actually see what created all of this. And I think that's that's the power for white people. Um, the response has really been, oh my God, I just didn't know. I, I can never see my country the same now. Um, and for black folks, it has been, thank God, because I knew something wasn't right, but I didn't have the mm-hmm. words and the history and the facts to like, back up my feelings. Um, so that's that's what I think is is important. That's why history matters. It just, it, it explains Almost everything. Your um, This American Life, the problem we all live with, is so unbelievable. I've listened to it several times. And one of the moments that really blows me away um, is when you get to the uh, the PTA mm-hmm. meeting mm-hmm. and the parents are speaking out. And they're saying, are they going to bring their bad grades? Are they going to bring their disease? Are they going to bring their criminality? And this it, was an elementary school teacher who was worried about them bringing weapons and drugs right, right. Um, into and, the school. And, and, and this is sort of the element, and those people say, we're not racist, we're concerned about our children. Yes. But this notion of we are contagions, we are walking disease of disease, uh, criminality, and uh, stupidity, yes. right? And it will infect our community. So we must move away or block them. And this is sort of a big part of what we see with racism all the time, yes. why they feel like they must escape us. They're going, either they're going to ruin our economic value, they're going to ruin the intelligence, they're going to bring actual disease or criminality. Yeah. yeah and- Talking about little kids. But that's the thing is we are we are indoctrinated uh, from the moment we take a breath in this country into anti-black racism. When mm-hmm. when I give talks, I say, if I ask you to think of 10 stereotypes about black people and give you 30 seconds, could you do it? And of course, like you could write it down so fast, you don't even have to think about it. Now, did people's parents sit them down and say black people are this, black people are that? Well, Probably not. Well, my you don't have did. to. I mean, I don't know if your your father, or your parents did. I mean, they. I mean, they told me they expect you to be lazy. No, they, black people have these conversations. But what I'm saying is, nobody has to teach us to think these negative things about black people. True. We just know, and it actually is a very logical thing that happens when when we. Uh, decide to be a country founded on both slavery and freedom. As I say, we justify that by dehumanizing black people and by saying that black people are not like other people. They're not like other human beings. Therefore, um, when we brutalize them, when we rape them, when we kill them, we exploit their bodies for profit. 
we don't really have to feel that bad about it because they don't feel pain like us because they don't love like us. So when I sell this mother's child away from her, she doesn't, she doesn't feel what I feel. She feels like what a dog would feel with the puppy being gone. She'll forget about her child the next day, which is literally what they would tell these women, right? Tomorrow, you won't, you won't even think about your child. Now, to create a system like that and then add emancipation, say, actually, you're fully human just like the rest of us. You cannot... Because the whole lie that upheld the system was that we weren't. And you have to keep that lie going to justify the past. You have to keep that lie going to say we were an exceptional country based on liberty and freedom. Um, And so each generation passes on that knowledge that black people are deserving of our fate. We are deserving of a reality because we are not fully human like them. And we... um, are just awash in that. We don't even have to have anyone explicitly say it. It is it is in the fiber of our country. It is it is it is the lie the 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 lie that hides our hypocrisy, and the segregation of us that happens after the end of slavery and continues now is a way to uh, not just degrade us but remind us of our place in the bottom and to contain the contagion. Um, you know, Abraham Lincoln called black people the troublesome presence. Mm. And we have always been seen as the obstacle to national unity because our very existence here is the lie. We're only here because this country was built on a lie. No other group is that true. But every time they see black people, they know that we actually weren't founded on freedom or liberty. We're actually founded as a slaveocracy. So after slavery, they wanted us to die off. Or, as Abraham Lincoln tried, wanted to ship us off to some other country and to just be rid of us. Um, But we're here, and so we have to pay. And every generation of us continues to pay. Um, I want to take a step back because you don't only think about um, what it is to be black in America, but you also think a lot about journalism Mm -hmm. and how to do good, important journalism. So just from a journalistic standpoint, regardless of the subject, what is the difference between a good journalist and a great journalist? Mm. Um, I think a good journalist is always skeptical, um, has a, has humanity. And I think to be a journalist, you have to be a rigorous scholar. I think, so much of my frustra- frustration uh, with reporting, particularly on race, but not just race, is um, our acceptance of uh, what powerful people say to us, mm. um, our desire not to really have the type, type of expertise. I think a lot of journalism can be very lazy. Um, people ask me, you know, all the time, I, I get a lot of white journalists who are like, you know, you have to be black to write about race. And I'm like, that's silly. Uh, first of all, you have a race. Uh, you have a stake in this. White people think they don't. They do. That's exactly right. That's the problem. They they are raceless. Um, but also, there's a lot of black uh, reporters who aren't good at writing about race because it is... Uh, something that you need to have expertise in, just like anything else that you would cover. I'm good at writing about race because I study it. I study it a lot. So I think I just wish, um, I mean, I'm like many Americans consistently frustrated with political coverage. I'm consistently frustrated with uh, kind of the echo chamber nature of journalism or this uh, false objectivity that everyone wants to have Mm. when there's actual facts of things. Yeah. I'm like, 
sometimes that works, but most times there's actually a fact that a side that is right or telling the truth yeah. or that the evidence supports and there's a side that it doesn't. But false um, equivalence seems yes. to make you above it all and saying, well, you know, both sides have a say here and both sides have an argument, but one side might be lying. And if you're not telling the audience, this person is lying That's or right. this person's position is ridiculous, um, then you're not actually doing your job. Yeah, and I think newsrooms got hypersensitive uh, to these accusations of a liberal bias after the uh, Trump election. Uh, but what that has done is like, you know, how long were they holding on to this narrative that economic anxiety was a reason white voters supported Trump, despite the data that show the average Trump supporter was upper middle class, mm. college educated, um, that you couldn't put that on poor white people. And clearly that nobody had more economic anxiety than black folks and 90 percent of us <laughs> voted against Trump. Um, but it's this uh, adherence to conventional wisdom. It's this view from nowhere, I think, that I find uh, incredibly frustrating as a journalist. And um, the other thing is, you know, you have to be able to tell a damn story. Like ultimately, you can do a major investigation, but if it's boring as hell, no one's ever going to read it. And what what impacts people is good writing that actually tells a story. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. To do, I mean, you do a lot on investigative journalism and teaching how to do that. Yes. And I mean, that is about listening, about finding the real people who can tell you the real story. What else is that? about doing investigative journalism really well? Because a lot of people are not practicing that, not trying to, right. and don't have the money to be able to do it. But it's an incredibly important skill just for the upholding of a democracy. Yeah. Uh, so I, I should first say that uh, all good reporting to me uses investigative uh, techniques. The difference is investigative reporters can take a long time to work on something, and most reporters have to turn things really quickly. But uh, at its best, investigative reporting is trying to uncover things that powerful people don't want you to uncover. It is uh, trying to uh, show the way that power is wielded against the, the vulnerable. And so uh, what's important is, can you get people to talk to you about things that people don't want to know? Can you find the documents, the proof, the data? Um, it's it's really, I mean, what I love about it is it's like digging. It's 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 like being an investigator. You are you are trying to unearth things through a variety of methods um, that people don't want known, and uh, it is. You know, we're called the fourth estate for a reason. We are part of the checks and balance system of our democracy, which is why, of course, um, it is part of Donald Trump's strategy and uh, to delegitimize the press. Because if people don't trust what we say, then you have much more freedom to be corrupt. And I think uh, his attacks are very targeted in that way. Um, so at our best... At our best, we are working on behalf of uh, the powerless or the less powerful um, and, and providing that uh, sheen of exposure and protection uh, of our democracy. This is what we do on a daily basis. And it can not even just democracy, but it's, you know, health, you know, the Flint water crisis. That's investigative reporter. That's reporting that exposes the way that people made decisions that have hurt a lot of people. Um, when you look at uh, investigations about, you know, there was that that great independent journalist in um, Chicago that broke the Laquan McDonald story. And uh, 
the white prosecutor, or I think she was Latina prosecutor, was ousted after that. And they have a reform black prosecutor in there. This is what our work should be doing I mean, um, at you, its best. On your website, you talk about confronting <laughs> hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. And that is so important. And we talk about, we think about like the griots, right? Who are like buried outside the community because they tell the stories, mm-hmm. right? And they hold, and you have to be willing to confront the stories that people don't want to hear about. And, you know, one of the great um, regrets that I have in my career, I was at Rolling Stone covering black music Mm. in the 90s. Mm. And I never said, is this Michael Jackson's story? Is this real? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I accepted the bullshit without question. Like, he just wanted to be a kid. Diane Diamond is crazy. Like I, and I never took it seriously. And it's a whole generation of reporters that didn't take it seriously. Yeah. But you know, I, I was at a big place. I was one of the leaders, of the generation, and I never said, "Let me just knock on that door and just see." Yeah, you know, I, he paid somebody twenty million dollars, and my curiosity, and I was. I, I mean, like, I want to be like, well, I was in my 20s and early 30s. But still, like, nothing in you, $20 yeah. million, dollars, that's a lot of money. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I just accepted the idea that, like, it's easier just to pay 20 and go on with it. $20 million is a lot of money, a even for Michael money. Jackson. That's right. And, you know, just I think it was the idea of taking that seriously even for a second was too dangerous to me because of all that he meant because, you know, I grew up watching the J5 uh, yes. cartoon show and all that stuff. And I remember watching the moonwalk with my mom. I mean, so much. Was, but as journalists, just as an example, journalists, we have to be able to confront anything and, and knock down uh, uh, sort of the statues of our life and our world to say, like, that is wrong. And it can be yes. hard emotionally, but we have to be willing to do it. We do. And and this is this is why... Uh, I don't even pretend that there is such a thing as journalistic objectivity. There, There is not, right? We're, we're human beings. We all have biases. Our biases certainly uh, affect our coverage. It, uh, they affect what we cover and what we don't. Um, when I, what about, what, what year is this? Six, seven years ago, um, started writing, doing big projects on school segregation. And at that time, there was almost no... Um, news coverage of school segregation anymore. Uh, Journalists had just accepted it as a fact of life. And uh, I gave a speech at the Education Writers Association and I said, um, with what we know about the data, what we know about the harms of segregation and the benefits of integration for students and the fact that we've never treated uh, black students segregated the same, you see all the data, you're doing malpractice by not writing, like you're not doing your job about Uh, by not writing about segregation. What I also said was most education writers are white women. Are white women really going to write um, about a school district where their kids are attending school and do coverage that's going to push to lose advantage for their own kids, right? So this belief somehow that uh, we just see the facts as they are, it's just, it's not true. None of us do. And um, I'm just very open about in some ways, what my leanings and biases are, but we all have them. And I think uh, our job as journalists is to always be thinking about those and uh, assessing, is my coverage fair? Am I doing right by the story? Am I ignoring stories that I shouldn't? Um, And try to be as fair and accurate as possible. But um, 
I think that so many journalists use this idea of objectivity um, to really indemnify themselves uh, in, in coverage that often is very, very biased. You've talked a lot about education, how mm-hmm. it affected you, how it affected your daughter and your work in choosing the right school for your daughter. Can you, just as a parent, can you give advice to other black parents <laughs> on, you know, choosing the right educational uh, environment for their children? Because I know I spend a lot of time thinking, are we in the right school? Are we doing the right thing? And it's hard to know. And it's such an incredibly important choice. Yeah, I'm I'm the wrong person for that because uh, I believe in making educational choices for community and uh, my work is about, you know, I'm a public school kid. I believe strongly in public school education. Uh, I intentionally enrolled my daughter in a high poverty segregated school. Uh, so I'm probably not the person uh, people want to give them advice because I think um, one of the unintended consequences of the civil rights movement is all of those who had the means to get out, get out and got out and left our communities behind. Um, where it used to be that segregation meant our communities were racially segregated, but they were economically integrated. Mm -hmm. And now Mm -hmm. we have uh, our black children are facing a double segregation. They're going to schools where every child is black and every child is poor. And that is just uh, devastating. Um, So I personally uh, want us to make our educational choices about community, understanding that if I am a middle class or upper middle class black parent, I can give my child every support that she will need to be successful, no matter what educational environment I put her in. But what I bring and what our family brings to that school is um, a power that that school doesn't have otherwise. Like it changes the dynamic of school when a New York Times reporter sends their kid there. So, has this been the best possible thing for your daughter? Has it changed the environment, the school environment in the way that you had hoped? No, because, um, I mean, no, I, I'm, I, I'm not naive that one or two families will change a whole school. Um, but I also think we then use that as an excuse not to act. And if, if all of us decide that we are not going to throw our lot in with our folks, then we just admit that the the system is going to be a two-tiered system and we're just going to play our part in it. So you want to be, I'll I'll be first. Yeah, I just think it's, I think it's important. I I don't think, how can I sit here and say I'm advocating on behalf of children that I wouldn't put my own child around? I I think that's immoral. So I personally couldn't do it. Um, No, she's not in, you know, she's not getting the education I'm sure that your child is getting. I know that. And uh, but I also don't think I'm harming her. I think she's getting a good education, but I also think she's learning to be a good citizen and a good human being and to think about community. And we talk a lot about, you know, um, she has things that most kids don't have and she lives a life that most kids don't have. And I don't ever want her separated from that experience. Um, my ambition for my child is that she can live out her dreams, but not that she has to have a certain pedigree. I don't give a damn if she goes to Harvard. I actually hope she never wants to go to a place like that. Like I, I just, uh, I don't think I have the typical uh, motivation that parents have. My motivation is really what is best for our whole community and not just my child who is already very advantaged. I mean, that that is part of where well, a lot of us run into the trouble, right? Of course. Of, of, we have communal... Uh, dreams, but I want my child to have the best. 
and can't, and, and you can't have both. You can't have both. And you are a rare person who's like, I'm going to put my communal dreams or principles. But doesn't your, wouldn't your child still have the best? So for instance, my daughter's getting tutoring tonight, right? So she doesn't have so you give her a private, private school the- education, but I have a math tutor who's going to come by and help her with math tonight. Um, I guess what I always, so I, I tell white parents something different than black parents because white parents clearly have a, a different obligation, right? White parents have been generationally, generationally advantaged and experienced advantage in every way. And I certainly understand black folks like me who are the first generation who actually could give our children the best of everything to then say you finally are at a place where you can do that and don't do it. I get that that's a hard thing to ask, but I'm also like no one else is coming to save our kids. They're not coming. We are all that we have. Um, And I really hope to raise my child with the sense that making it is not getting out in a way that making it is actually staying in your community and trying to help your community to make it as well. Um, I don't, know that, you know, when she gets older, she might ask me, like, why did you do that? You had the, you know, ability to give me the best education money could buy and you chose not to do that. And maybe she won't agree with my choice. But uh, to me, I just couldn't, I I wouldn't feel right doing anything else. And I don't feel like I'm sacrificing her because I, I really, I ask parents all the time, like, what, what is the worst thing that you think will happen? What do you actually think that you're giving up by doing this? Um, I don't know. What, what do you think you would be giving up? For Well, you know, I can only fall back on my journey. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my parents um, put my sister and I in private school from first grade. My sister was in kindergarten. We were in the same school through 12th grade. I know that school was more rigorous than our college. It, about as rigorous at the high school level as my graduate school. So by my teenage years, I was used to a level of rigor and academic expectation, intellectual expectation that outstripped what I got in my future academic after that college and graduate school. And it, it gave me everything that I needed to have the uh, intellectual and creative life that I have had since then, that yes. the real preparation happened in high school more than in college and in graduate school. Um, graduate school was a necessary step, but the college, in terms of the education I got, was not a necessary step as a as compared to ed, uh, high school. So, knowing that, I'm like, I have to try to give that to you because this is where you can gain those those skills that step that will allow you to be whatever you want to be. Um, that That's what I know. But all of our kids deserve that. I agree. But all of our kids won't get that if those of us who can escape always escape. And I think that's what it comes down to for me is the only difference between you and the parent and the housing project at my daughter's school is you have resources and they don't. And that's the only difference because that parent wants the exact same thing. And, um, they're never going to get it. They're, they're never going to get it as long as all of us um, just take what we can get for our own children. And I guess that's what I'm arguing. So usually when people ask me for advice, I'm like, just read, read the piece I did about my daughter and you'll see I'm not, I'm not going to give you what you want because um, I think the beauty of uh, black people in general 
is we always we're, we're always much more focused on community than uh, individual progress, and that's because we had to be because uh, because of racism. You could be a doctor or you could be the janitor and y'all were going to have to be living in the same place. You'll be treated the same way. Everything about your life was constrained by membership of the race. And I do think that as uh, some of us are allowed now to go into white institutions and to gain a, a different level of success, that that fabric is is being torn in a way uh, that that is doing irreparable harm uh, to the masses of our folks who will never be able uh, to secure those advantages uh, without our help. I mean, I agree with you, but, uh, you know, and I agree with your intellectual position, but as you know, as you emotionally experience yourself that, you know, bring your children into the mix and you're like, everything changes and you, you maintain your principles yes. and I'm like, I feel you. And I think that it's wrong that our, that we, uh, uh, that we align our taxation so so regionally, we don't do that for anything else. There are parks that I am paying for that I will never be able yeah. to visit and roads that I will never drive on. But but public school dollars are hyper-localized and that right. should not be. And if we change that, we can change the nature of public schooling in our areas in Some America, it, yeah. but we do it this way. But um you asked me though, so I told you. No, and I and no, a hundred percent, hundred percent. This is yeah. This is always where the conversation gets uncomfortable because I know what people want, but again, like that's just not. Well, when we started going, it's not to, the advice that I'll ever. When give. we started going to school, I quickly realized that talking to people about their educational choices was not a good idea. Just yeah. you know, and people who were like, well, I went to public school, and I'm sending my kids to public school, and I believe in that, and that's great. I had a different experience and I have a different expectation for myself set by my parents. And um, if I wanted to find, you know, my principles, like for private school, like this is not going to be a comfortable conversation right. for either of us. And I'm never going to tell you you're wrong. You're not wrong. You're right for you and your children. Um, I'm going to tell you you're wrong, though. <laughs> are you telling me I'm wrong? Um, I mean, Yeah. Yeah. Wrong. I'm you're saying I'm doing wrong for the community. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you're doing right for your child. Yeah. But also it also is what is the value too. So uh there's a thing in giving your child every academic advantage, which in turn is trying to give them every economic advantage. Yeah. Uh but I like to think that education is more than about how much money can my child make one day. I like to think that education is about uh how do we live in a multiracial democracy? How do we learn to live uh, outside of, of a bubble of our own making? I, I, I would like to think that education is about making us good people and good citizens. And um, actually, this is the beauty of public schools that are actually public schools, meaning they actually reflect the public, is that's exactly what they are. And you have a little bit of everything. And well, I think that's to, beautiful. My kids go to private school in Williamsburg. So they get a little bit of everything. It is a black, brown, and yeah. white school. What it is, is the economic like, diversity of the school, though? There is economic diversity. because they and I, and I see it. They work very hard to give a lot of financial aid. So there are multiple classes mm -hmm. within each class. There's different races. So, I mean, especially in a Williamsburg, in a, in a Fort Greene sort of context, like you're going to have a wide array of people. What's the school? From different, my, well, let me not say the name of my <laughs> you know I'm about to school. fact check you. No, I mean, and you, and you can, and I can say, I'll say it to you offline. Okay. But, but. Yeah, it's probably a good idea not yeah, to. But I don't want to say, school. I mean, like the, I the show goes globally. So yeah, I don't yeah. want to say the name of my kid's school. Um, but 
my kids' school, they do experience a wide array of people. Mm-hmm. Um, at the headmaster is a black woman. Um, right, but you, you know, you there's black have a and wide brown. array of people at Harvard, but one would not say the Harvard reflects the public, right? Sure, of course, of course. Of so course. that's what I'm saying is, yeah, um, there's a lot of white parents in public schools who their schools look like the United Nation, but that's because those kids have been screened 12 different times. And I mean, it's a very particular type of kid. And you might have phenotype diversity, but the backgrounds are actually very similar. And that's, that's. I mean, I surely do relate very deeply to your diversity um, critique of private schools. Cause I definitely went to the private school where, you know, there were two black kids right. in the seventh grade of 20 white kids and two of us. And we had, I had deep identity issues coming out of that and, you know, felt like literal oppression and all sorts yeah. of things. Um, God, I remember this student, this was a transformative moment for me that I was in seventh grade and the student who was extremely popular, um, who had gotten into Brown and he had overheard somebody else say, um, well, he only got into Brown because of affirmative action. Mm-hmm. And this was an extraordinary student, athlete, like head of student government. Like, you've got to be kidding me. And he was deeply hurt. And he's telling this story in front of the whole school. And I was like, oh, my God, if they think that of him, right. what must they think of me? Because right. I am far from his level academically, right. athletically, popularist government. Um, so, you know, I mean, like I wore that burden absolutely and my kid's school is not lily white like that but um i mean that that was definitely one of the trade-offs that i got this education but i don't know what it did to me emotionally yeah, and personally sure. uh, going through that sort of experience yeah there are definitely uh psychic costs i mean i i wrote about this too because i was bused to white school starting in second grade that's uh the choice that my parents made for me And, you know, academically it was great, but socially and emotionally it was terrible. And I actually knew that I was never going to put my child in a situation to be like one of five black kids in the school. Was that that you were were one of five? Yeah, in elementary school I was. Um, And then by the time I got to high school, it was, you know, a decent amount of black kids. But um, I also didn't think at that time that I put my child in a completely segregated school either. I think I wanted what uh, most Americans say they want, though. I don't know that they really want it. You know, I wanted just an integrated school. I wanted a school that reflected uh, our society. Uh, it's just unfortunately, it's very, particularly in New York City, there's very, very, very few schools like that. You know, the funny thing about that affirmative action story, I think about that a lot. Um, it's just, it shows how white supremacy always finds its level, mm-hmm. right? Because if you're not there, you're being a bum and a derelict. You just don't want to work hard. But then if you're there, you don't deserve to be there and mm-hmm. somebody like gave it to you, uh, which essentially says, you know, black folks can't win either way, but. You said something that really um, um, blew my mind. You say lots of things that blow my mind, <laughs> but you talked about how how whiteness expands and yes. how throughout history, you know, different groups have been subsumed into whiteness that once it was no Irish need apply and then they became part of whiteness. Yes. Uh, you know, we could argue that Jewish people have become part of whiteness yes. where they once were not. Italians, uh, Italian, Polish. On and on. And this pervasive fear of the future of a majority minority country, yeah, um, which I always thought 
I think we I always agreed with you with your point that like black, brown and Asian people never agree on everything. Black people don't agree on everything, but black, brown and Asian people don't agree on everything where we will come together and dominate the country politically and economically to where white people suddenly become this minority. So the entire construct is, is flawed. But your notion is that whiteness will expand and will take in other sorts of people to reassert its dominance as its numbers are falling. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what history has shown us. It's again, that's why I love studying history because when you look around a society today and, you know, I was arguing with somebody on Twitter the other day. who was like, race is real. You go hard on Twitter. I I, I don't play around Twitter. Uh, it's, it's like a uh, it's an outlet for my anger, yeah. clearly. Um, but, you know, it's like whiteness is a race. And I was like, well, what defines someone as white? Who is white? Um, and this, this belief that this is a fixed thing, and if it's fixed, then it's real. But it's not fixed, and it's never been fixed. Um, and I don't believe, I mean, you saw under Bush, the Republican Party was kind of going towards the whitening of Latinos or at least Latinos mm-hmm. who aren't black. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then they lost their mind and just gave up for, you know, I don't know why. But I imagine they'll come back to that, right? There are certain uh, Latinos, the vote is already split. You know, there's plenty of Latinos who, well, one Latino is a false category. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's a whole bunch of different people from different culture, countries and different races who we decided are lumped together, but a white Argentinian don't give a damn about, uh, you know, indigenous Guatemalan. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but we lumped them all together and then are somehow surprised that like 60% or 40% voted for Trump. And I'm like, that's not surprising. Uh Cubans, Argentinians, right? There's a certain groups that that align. Um, and when we think about the fact that in when was when was uh, I Dream of Lucy on? 1940s, 1950s? Okay, 1950s, I think. Right. Okay. So at a time when like uh, Emmett Till could be lynched. You mean I Dream of Jeannie? No, or? I Love Lucy. I Love Lucy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 50s. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah 50s. Yeah. So Emmett Till can be lynched for uh, the belief that he whistled at a white woman, mm. but Desi Arnaz can. Mm. be on TV married to a white woman um, tells you that Latinos are malleable in the eyes of whiteness. Mm. And so I think, I think about that and that as you know, clearly uh, Trump and the rise of white nationalism is around this fear that uh, white people are losing their numerical majority, though they'll still have the plurality and clearly still hold all the power and the wealth. Mm-hmm. But this idea that they're losing their numerical uh, majority is driving this white nationalism. And the way that we've responded to that in the past is through two things. One, what Donald Trump is doing, which is changing uh, immigration law to allow in more white people and restrict the number of non-white uh, people in and by expanding whiteness. So uh, my prediction, though, I think it's you know stupid to make predictions, but this one's based in history, is a certain number of Latinos will be brought into whiteness and uh, they'll be able to keep the majority. Um, I mean, you know, we see just from conversation that you are a genius but oh. you are well thank you i'm glad i didn't certified disprove that by coming and talking not to at you. All, but you are certified <laughs> genius by the macarthur folks and i see it's making you uncomfortable and yeah, i'm, I'm not like mad I, at that. I yeah but can you uh, you're not the first person to come on the show who has that certification and i'm just curious if you can describe uh the moment of getting the call <laughs> about that and what that was like yeah, it's probably 
it's the most surreal thing that's ever happened to me. Um, Because as you know, you don't know you're being considered for it. You have no idea. And I literally uh, had never even heard of the MacArthur Fellowship until Ta-Nehisi had gotten it like two years before. So it was never even like, this is nothing I ever thought about um, and certainly didn't think I would be considered by it. Um, So I'm at work and I get a call and it's, so the night before I got the call, Tanahazi was having a book party for uh, the release of his book, We Were Eight Years in Power. And I met um, this black woman from MacArthur there. And um, so we were talking and I, I have this nonprofit organization. So we had talked about funding and that sort of thing. Um, so the next day I see on the caller ID and we exchanged information that MacArthur was calling and it's her. So I'm like, oh, we're going to talk some more about me getting some grant money for uh, my organization. And she's like, yeah, you know, we um, we were talking last night. You told me you knew three MacArthur geniuses. And I was like, yeah. Um, and she said, I think you know four. And I was like, no, I just know, I just know three. And she was like, no, you know four because you're one. And then I was like, holy shit. And I like yelled it. And then I hear all this laughing in the background because she has me on speakerphone because when they make the calls, they like a bunch of people to be in there. And I was just like, I was just fucking shocked. Like I, I, I just could not believe it. And then you can't tell anyone for like a month and a half, which is killing you. Yeah, like your husband, uh, or you could pick like one person who you really trust, um, but you're not supposed to tell anyone. Which of course, like when you have a secret, the heart it's like you want to get you get Tourette's almost. Like it just wants to like <laughs> fly out of your mouth. Um, but yeah, it was. It was just, it, it was amazing and surreal. And uh, yeah, it was, it was a great year. Thanks to Nicole for a great interview. And thanks to you for listening. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality and this show can help. I'm on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. So please leave a review on iTunes. It definitely helps. And tell your friends about the show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garfano. Our editor is Ryan Woodhull. And our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington. And we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back next Wednesday with another amazing guest because the man can't shut us down. (laughs) 